you know, with, I think you'll see if anyone digs into all of our stories is like, we basically, you know, built up some, you know, really interesting, you know, relatively rare and valuable skills. And then we combine them in like an interesting way. And like, there's really like no way to skip that step. Like you can't just like decide you want a seven figure product as service and then like start. The good news is like anyone can get good at something pretty quickly. You practice every day and you can get good at it. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right, in today's episode, we are having a, a world record, well, on the podcast. We have four guests, so five people in total, and the Zencaster recording technology did not break. So we're doing a roundtable on productized service, and I have four people that have built some insanely successful productized services. We have John Doherty, who this is his second productized service. Um, his is called Editor Ninja. It literally just launched, and they've already hit six figures Sam Shepler is the CEO of Testimonial Hero. That one's doing uh, approaching $4 million. Carl Hughes is the CEO of Draft.dev, which says seven figures. Um, Drew Kletke is CEO of Case Study Buddy, which is also um, in the kind of seven-figure club. And we really get into it with, hey, what is productized services? How do you create the right niche or niche? I'm sure not sure how to say that on what's right for your business. How should you price it? How do you get leads for it? How can you scale it? And we talk about what's working for us and what's not working for us. So um, as someone who has a very small productized service that just launched One Day Design, we just crossed over 50,000. I was very much a listener and taking a lot of notes on this one. So I hope you get out of this what I did. Uh, really enjoyed it. And if you like it, we'll, we'll do more like this. All right. Today on the podcast, we are trying something that, that might crash Zencaster, but that's okay. We are doing a five-person pod. We're calling it the Productized Service Roundtable. I am in a very exciting and active, I guess it's a Twitter message thread with some other founders where we're like, hey, where are the other Productized Service owners? Do we even exist? And so we came together. And I forgot who said it, but we think there are dozens of us. But, but basically today, we just want to compare notes on what's going on with each other's productized services. So I'm Jim Muffman. I've got a productized service called One Day Design, but I'd love to go around the horn. If everybody could just introduce themselves and the productized service that they do. And uh, Sam, I see you in my, my top right corner, so go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Sam Shepler, founder and CEO of Testimonial Hero. Testimonial Hero started out as a way to help marketing teams easily create video testimonials anywhere around the world. And it's sort of evolved to a, a little bit more since then. But fundamentally, you know, we're all about, you know, video testimonials on site and remotely for, you know, mostly a B2B software company. Carl, go for it. You got the mic, man. Yeah, Carl Hughes. I run draft.dev. We do content marketing, but for developer tools companies and our kind of productized service is basically just done for you technical marketing content, mostly blog posts, a little bit of ebooks and some other things like that. A lot of tutorials. Basically, we do the stuff that a lot of those content marketing companies wouldn't be able to do because we write stuff with real code samples and GitHub repos, lots of really deep tech stuff. So <laughs> super niche down. When I started this, people always said like, there's no way you can actually make a business off this. And we have 16 full-time people. So there is a way to make a business off this. You showed the haters. Well done. Wrong. John. <laughs> My whole life. Yeah, right? Under, underdogs unite. So I'm John Doherty, based out of Denver, Colorado. And I am the founder of two different productized services. One is called Credo, where we basically connect businesses, brands looking to hire an agency with vetted digital marketing and development agencies. And then the other one, my, my newer service, which is more of a true productized service is Editor Ninja, where the design pickle of copy editing and proofreading. So we, we serve in-house content teams at brands and also content agencies who are producing content for clients that find that either their, you know, their marketing managers are overloaded in-house and spending a lot of time editing. And they find that, you know, they're spending a ton of time writing and then, uh, 
don't have the time to edit or content agencies that find that hiring and keeping editors around is just as hard as finding and keeping writers around. And so at the end of the day, we are providing content editing services at scale, working with all MFA editors. Just got off a call with a new one. So we are we are hiring. I will soon be at five editors editing six figures of content a month for clients. So that is that 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 service is growing quickly. It's a ton of fun. So that's what I'm doing these days. Bowen. And he has his own editor ninja hat that is a one of one. So there it is. If if you can, okay. if you're only hearing, just know that it looks very, very handsome. And then Joel, if you would introduce yourself. And by the way, Joel and I are just now meeting, so this is a very exciting moment. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Joel Klecky. I run Case Study Buddy. And when we started, we were completely focused on you know productizing written case studies. And then as different and, and more opportunities arose. We've kind of evolved to really be kind of an entire, I guess, case study department. We work with companies, mid-sized enterprise, B2B, a lot of software, tech, a lot of services, helping them capture, share, cash in on customer success stories by turning them into a full complement of assets uh, that can be deployed in a campaign. So everything from short form written content like one sheets or even social media posts to video testimonials uh, to audiograms, really just looking at the full ecosystem of how can we take customer stories and turn them into as much meaningful and strategic collateral as we can, which is very different from, from what we started out doing and has come with all kinds of interesting challenges, but has been a lot more fun to build, I think, than the original idea. That's awesome. So people listening, hopefully they know what productized services, but there's probably some, maybe it's my mom that like, what the heck are these guys talking about? Why are they getting all jazzed about productized service? So Sam, we'll put you on the spot because you have a platform around productized services. What, what's the two sentence explanation of what is a productized service? You, you can only say it in 15 seconds ago. Productized service is a service that you can put a process behind so it can be delivered you know, repeatedly without you having to be involved in every single project. And it can also be sold easier and repeatedly again, without you having to be so involved in the sales process, if you do not want to be. That was really good. good. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. you, you really put me on the spot there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> to me, the, the opposite is those like high touch consultants that do anything for anybody who ever has a problem and like just general business consultants, they're like the far end of the spectrum. Then productized services, the other end, and there's all service businesses. And technically it's like we can, I, there's all sorts of things that we can kind of share, but at the same time, like there's a big swath of things that are not at all like each other. And I, it's funny because as someone who has an agency that does a lot of custom work where I learn it the hard way, that spectrum is very, very real. And another thing with productized services, you can really niche down. And I don't know if you guys think about it, but like how far down should a niche go on a productized service? I don't know, John, if you have any thoughts on that because you're, you're doing a very specific part of the the writing you know, journey, but like, what are your thoughts on niching down? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I was actually thinking about this this morning on my walk that I think, especially at the start, niching down, niching down is, is how I pronounce it is, is super important, right? To get traction. I was wondering how um, to pronounce that. And I think I say yeah. it wrong, like differently <laughs> every time. So yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It just is. Yeah. Jim is more, more suave than I am. I mean, he does own a product called Handsome Chaos. So yeah, Jim's, Jim knows what's Shot, up. Um, shots fired. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that, that was a compliment, my friend. So yeah, so basically, I think niching down is a great way to do it when you're first getting off the ground, right? And finding a part, I think, especially starting finding a part of the process that is super painful for someone to own. So it, it's just much easier to get traction or or just like being super like specific about who it is that you serve. Like at Credo, when we were first starting out, it was like, you can find any type of marketing provider for any type of business. And then, you know, people are like, well, what about this? We don't have providers for that. What about this? We don't have providers for that, right? And so we actually focused down to four SEO content, PPC and content marketing. And the business like tripled in six months, something like that, because we were super, super focused, right? We were actually able to provide a good service. We've since expanded and we kind of hit a, hit a growth ceiling and now we're expanding again and expanding the market. But I think especially when you're starting, being super focused is the, is the way to go. And then you can, and you don't even necessarily, this is something else that I, mean, I think we're going to get into later about like pricing and packaging, but you don't even necessarily have to like provide different types of services to keep on growing, like to serve something more. You can just like, 
you can add on like for us, you know, we do copy editing and proofreading, but we can also add on line, el- line editing and developmental editing and have dedicated editors and that sort of thing. So it's like different types, different ways to do the same service can be, yeah, a, it's just can be like a really expanding good way to your business. boundary. Like the, yeah. the way you said that with the boundaries around what you do offer, that's the way I think about it. It's like, yes, we serve a niche market, but then we also just have really tight boundaries about what we will and won't do. And when right. somebody's outside of that, we just say no. And then once we get enough people asking for that next boundary out, we draw the line out a little further. Like we had a lot of people it. asking about, could you add social collateral to the piece? You know, could you send us some tweets and LinkedIn posts and whatever? And it's like, yeah, sure, we could do that. And we just said no for a long time until we had enough people. Mm-hmm. And we said, okay, fine, we'll throw that on for an extra charge. And it's like, now exactly. we have an expanded service and another 10% of revenue. Exactly. And Joel, you've you've kind of done that, it seems, with with Case Study Buddy. You're not just doing like the, and I mean, Sam, you too, with Testimonial here, it's not just, you know, the like video case studies. And obviously they're like higher, you know, higher value than what most people are doing, but, or pretty much anyone else. But, you know, Joel, I mean, especially Joel, you were saying doing like, shorts, like social media snippets, like basically how do you use test, use the voice of the customer to market, right? To increase conversion. So y'all have done the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you still need meaningful boundaries, right? Like we would draw a very hard line. We have no interest in ever like setting up and running your ad campaign. To me, that is a completely different, it's, it's not even tangential. It's a totally different service that we would need totally different people and processes and a totally different delivery model around. And so when I look at you know, avenues for expansion. I think one of the critical questions has always been like how, number one, how difficult would it be for us to roll this in? And number two, is the value, like, is it amplifying the value of the core offer or not? You know, we could take, we've been asked in the past, could you take the same process used for case studies and make eBooks? And it's like, well, yeah, but no, because that's a completely different, you know, when you look at, yes, there's aspects of the process that would be the same, but the end goal, the itch we scratch for the companies that really get it, it's it's worlds apart. So, you know, it's not the case that we woke up one day and just went, oh, let's do it all. Let's, you know, let's let's do every type of content under the sun. It's really been that kind of, you know, what Carl was talking about, where we'd get requests for it. We did some careful evaluation. And most of the things we're creating are just iterations on the core. A one sheet, if you can write it, a long form narrative story, you can write a one sheet. You can summarize the story in that way. If you're running a really great interview and you've got that audio available, well, your your interviewers are selecting quotes for the piece anyhow. If the audio is good, the steps to roll into making that a product of its own are not, you know, so out there that you're venturing to new territory. I think the, you know, the hardest one is definitely there's there's huge differences between written and video, and that that comes with all sorts of you know new challenges. But beyond the ads, it does it amplify the core offer. And at any point, if it's like, no, this is a totally new core offer, that's where it's like, I, I don't think we'd, we'd cross that line. I like that way of thinking about it. Yeah. They try to do, do the expansion, though, too early. And I don't know that there's like a revenue number you should target or what the thing is. But like somehow you have to set up like a rule early on that says like we are going to be very narrowly scoped to start and then eventually i don't know for us it was kind of like enough customers asked and i had enough time to develop the offering that i was like okay fine we'll do the next thing but i don't know how you do you guys have a way that you make those lines like how do you redraw that line how when do you decide yeah it's time to do is it a revenue plateau plateau is it something else yeah it's it's such a good question and i think I don't know if we do it perfectly, but I think it's for us, it's just like thinking about, you know, looking at the market and being like, is there still like really good wood to chop with what we're doing? And if there is like, why are we going to go collect twigs over on the side when, you know, you know, there's, you know, like I said, really good wood to chop. So like, basically that usually like, cause everything sounds like such a good idea. It's like, oh, we can make money doing this. Like we can, it, it all sounds good in a vacuum, but then you have to like, Think about it in terms of like, yes, but like, you know, is that actually better than just doing more of what's actually working? Plus the operational complexity, you know, it would add. So like, for me, it's less about like deciding when to do it and just continuously like trying to remind yourself to like not get too distracted, at least for myself. I think that's a huge challenge, especially because a lot of founders are ideas people and you get excited about the sexy new thing or the the new format. I mean, I've, I've run headfirst into this in the process of building case study, but there, there are things we rolled in that were too early and it was not the time. And we had to, you know, 
back off of those things later on. And I, I think the chop wood analogy is really good. I think, you know, in line with that too, it's for me is like, again, what is that point of difficulty or complexity? How difficult would it be? Does it take new people, new process, new capabilities? Because one of the biggest leaps to make, for example, is anytime you need someone more specialized, that's a, that's a harder thing to bring in. If you want to be doing, you know, specialist consulting and getting into the weeds on strategy, you need people who can do that. You know, like if, if Ninja wanted to get into now, well, let's start talking about you know, like what you could do with this piece and how you could repurpose it. I mean, could the team editing it come up with ideas for it? Yeah. And it might seem like a sexy idea on its face. Are they the best people to be doing that? I think you'll, as soon as you try to scale an idea like that, you'll run headfirst into absolutely not. And if you've started offering that as a product, God help you because now you've got to dial it back. So I think it is a real challenge. Like staying in your lane, I think is really tough, really tough when you're building a product service, because there's always like Sam says, there's always that sexy idea. But I think the analogy of like logs and twigs is helpful to think about because it's yeah. all, it's always fun to fantasize about doing something different or new. But I mean, if the thing you're doing is working. I, yeah. And not just the operational complexity too, the sales complexity. Mm-hmm. So like when I hired my first sales guy, we offered one thing for one kind of people and it was so easy for him to sell. Like it it helped. I mean, this kind of goes in our next question about what we were going to talk about lead gen. Like it helps a lot of our stuff is inbound too, but like, even so just the fact that all we had was one thing and he just basically had to say yes or no. <laughs> and that was yeah. it. It was so easy. And now we've started adding other things and we just hired a new salesperson and it's going to be a little bit harder of a ramp time. I kind of told him like, don't worry about selling the other services. Let's just sell the core thing for you for now. You'll get to those in three months once you're really like ramped, you know what you're doing. I, I would way have underestimated that because as a founder, I could sell anything. I mean, like, but, but yeah. my salesperson cannot, they don't have the same. That is such good advice. You guys are hitting on two things. Cause one day design, we haven't found that niche or niche. And I have no confidence in how to say it, but, um, <laughs> stay in your way, man. Do you, <laughs> but to be honest, it's like, we're testing like e-commerce Shopify clients. We're getting some good results. And then there's Legion companies. And then it's like, Oh, is it Webflow or is it WordPress? And I'm so impatient. I just want to put my foot on the gas and grow, but I know we have to hone in because if we really had the cojones, we would go a step further and, and niche down. And But we still are doing almost discovery. So we're trying to figure out those guardrails and what to do. And what I care about is stickiness and like, can we really deliver value? And we've been at it now a few months and we still are trying to figure that out. And so I don't have the answer. So it's fun to hear from you guys on that. But Carl, you bring up such a good point on sales because I just brought on a head of BizDev for growth it. And that sales is it's so hard. It's so complex. It's taking forever to train somebody where one day design, like my five-year-old can sell that. And I'm like, oh, I can actually delegate that, elevate someone to do that and move on to the next thing, which I didn't even think about that. But to Sam, your initial point, you want a business that could run without you. So I'd love to get into, we've talked about like, what is productized services, how to kind of really focus in and have your guardrails. How do you price this? I struggle with that so much. We had an hour-long meeting today thinking through, oh, do we do credits? Do we do hours? Do we do unlimited? What are you, what are you guys struggling with or what's really working as you go into pricing? I'll, I'll take this one first. One, well, I think the first thing to think about is like, how does your customer consume the service, right? Because like you'll never have success you know, coming top down and trying to fit your perfect pricing model if it doesn't align with like how the customer consumes a service. So like for us, like we, you know, we don't actually currently do, you know, much sort of like subscription work because our customers right now don't consume our, you know, services on a even subscription. It's, you know, more of like, you know, buying a package and working against that package because, you know, they don't really know like when their customers will agree to be on camera for the video testimonials. So like, you know, basically, you know, I think the first and foremost is like understanding, you know, how your customers consume all that being said, like, you know, you, there are things that you can do to kind of shift that or innovate there. So, so I'm, I'm never advocating just like, you know, 
throwing your hands up and say, this is the way it is. Like, you know, we'll never get down the perfect pricing model, but it, it's, it's a little bit of both. Uh, I think it's like understanding it, but then also like helping, you know, your customers become, you know, think about your space the way that, you know, you're hoping they do. For Edder Ninja, what we've discovered, what, what I know just from being in the space for a long time is that agencies are just there uh, who are our best customers are always producing content for clients. And editing has often been a, a cost center for them because they make money from doing more writing. And so actually, if we can make it easy for them to get editors going, they don't have to spend time finding them, hiring them, retaining them, paying them, etc. They can just plug in and literally get edited content back in 24 hours. Then they can put more time towards sales. They can put more time towards like their writers actually writing because when they have writers editing, that's costing them money because they're not writing, which is what they're getting paid for. So we know that it's, it's just ongoing. Right. And so for us, a subscription totally makes sense. Different from testimonial here, it totally makes sense because they're trying to scale up. And then we built our pricing so that it does scale, also making it easy for them to buy. So it's like up to about 20,000 words, you know, a month, $4.99 every four weeks. Our pricing is actually every four weeks, not every month. And then it goes to $9.99, $14.99, $19.99, up to about 80,000 words. And we talk about it in terms of we we it's they're basically paying for capacity. So if they're at $4.99 every four weeks, it's about a thousand, it's a thousand words a day. Might be 800 one day, might be 1200 the next day. But if there's like a 1500 word post, we are going to split that up over a couple of days. So that kind of just helps them, you know, grok how quickly they're going to get stuff back. And if they're on a super tight timeline, right, they're going to need more words or, you know, they know all of their posts are 1800 words. They should probably do, and they're producing 20 a month. They should probably be on the, you know, 2000 words a day, like capacity. So they get a post a day back basically. So that's kind of how ours has worked out. And then also one thing that, that kind of goes in with that is like on the, on the, the packaging side, the way that I've thought about it is our core offering is editing, right? Not writing. It's funny when I tell people we do content editing, they're like, so where do you find your writers? And I'm like, wait, <laughs> not what I said. Editing. You don't know what that word uh, means. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What, what you think that word means is not what it means. But you know, with editing, there's these different levels. So we started with copy editing and proofreading. Then there's line editing, there's developmental editing. So it's all, it's an expansion of the core offering, right? As Sam was saying. And then we're basically pricing according to that because I need to pay my editors more for developmental editing than for, you know, copy editing and proofreading, right? And I can have, and it involves some someone that is more, trained, right? That it's a higher skill to actually do developmental and line editing than just, you know, than just proofreading. So I've had to kind of adjust our pricing based on that. So our pricing is actually moving towards, hopefully by the time this goes live, Jim, I'll have our new pricing live. I've been working on it, but basically our pricing is moving from just like, how much do you, how much volume do you have to like, what services do you need? Plus how much volume do you have? So it's getting a little bit more. So I've, I've literally built a pricing calculator for people to determine how much this is going to cost me and then schedule a demo to talk about it and then get them on board. So like, it's not, it's not simple, right? And if we were just doing like just copy editing and proofreading, you know, for these specific like things, for specific like buckets of words, it would be a lot simpler to sell. It really would. But I also know we get asked all the time for, well, can I get a dedicated editor? Yes, we have that. You know, can you do developmental editing? Can I send you a shitty first draft and you basically make it good or send it back to me so that then I can correct it and then send it back for finalization? Sure, we could do that. We have that skill set in house, right? We just need to sell it, right? I just needed to price like, well, it and, I and sell it. I'd love that. <laughs> yeah, well, it actually came from See? our conversation on your podcast, Sam. Oh yeah, that's, <laughs> I was like, we, we couldn't serve it yet, but we can. <laughs> yeah. And other people asked me for it too, so I'm like, yeah, we can do that. You're gonna have to pay for it, but like. You know, well, but yeah. but we can make it work within the pricing structure. So that's how I've, how I've thought about it. The way Sam said it was is how I've seen it too. In that, like, you listen to what your customers want or expect from your kind of service and and make it easy for them. So we've gone up market pretty heavily in the last year. So gone from working with a lot of really early stage startups to a lot of mid stage and then publicly trade companies. And the purchase process and timeline and what they expect from you is totally different. And I definitely did not realize that until I got into my first enterprise sales. And I'm realizing the amount of paperwork they make you do, the amount of stuff they need from you. They don't just go, let's just, we're a high cost service too. So like if you were a maybe $500 a month thing, you could get away with some like under the radar, just a credit card payment. But we're high enough where you can't just do that. So they have to have a purchase order with line items of what they're buying. And that's just a requirement from like working with any vendor. So you kind of have to think about like, we can't just sell a monthly recurring content package to that kind of buyer, or they're going to go put a bunch of like roadblocks in from legal. And it's just going to be a bunch of back and forth. So we just try to meet them where they're at. And that's to Sam's point. I think that's, that's what I found too. But you have like specified pricing, right, Carl? 
or like yeah like, absolutely like we do still have specified pricing and now we're starting as well like this is something else to think about with pricing is like value pricing a bit so in other words the company that can make thirty thousand dollars from a blog post we should be charging more than the company that can make two thousand dollars for a blog post and we actually i mean with a big publicly traded company you know because they they have their numbers dialed in you can ask them you know on a sales call like how many leads does a blog post get you i know what your lifetime value of a customer is or i can get a pretty good estimate based on your industry and like what you do so we don't do it ex- to the extreme yet but we're starting to like experiment with it because why not it's you know we we rarely get balks at pricing at this point so just want to call out something you said there carl which i think is super important for people to remember is that like your productized service doesn't need to be like cheap or like, you know, you know, super accessible. Like you can have a premium productized service. And I think I like uh, some of the first productized services were, you know, very, you know, like, you know, two ninety nine a month, like unlimited WordPress, you know, bug fixes or whatever, you know, and like that is, you know, th- there's nothing you know wrong with that model. Like obviously some people have made it, you know, work really well, but like, you can absolutely like go up market as well. And I think like a lot of people, you know, probably don't realize that. And, and I think there's a big opportunity to, for a lot of, for people to realize, hey, like I can be, I can productize and I can also be premium. And, you know, it, it's just a different, there's, it's, and in fact, none is better than the other. It's just completely different strategies that are both available. If we were serving small business, our approach to pricing and packaging would have to be radically different than mid-sized enterprise, the company, again, in the beginning, when I came at it, you know, I came at it from through the lens of a producer. I, I was the guy writing the case studies and I was the guy running the interviews and whatever. And so your only consideration in those early stages, when you're coming out of being that person, if that's where your idea came from, you're not thinking about project management time. You're certainly not thinking about, oh, I'm engaging with an enterprise and we're going to have two weeks of back and forth on a legal agreement because there's multiple stakeholders involved here, you're not thinking about, you know, how much effort for us, for example, how much effort you're going to have to put in to stay top of mind. I mean, we share a challenge with Sam in that, you know, like our customers can only produce as many customer success stories as they have willing participants. So we either adjust pricing to account for that and let them execute across the package over time, or we intentionally seek out companies who for them, it's like coal into a furnace. They've got more people lining up than than resources to deliver against. But the size of the market you serve, you know, by necessity should inform not only like the price point. You people have this misconception like, oh, it's enterprise, so it's just more expensive because it's enterprise. And like, I think that the hard lesson is like, no, it's more expensive because serving enterprise actually is like markedly more expensive for you mm-hmm. as a team. And I think it's too really easy in the early days to have the dreams of, oh, I want to serve the unicorns. I want to serve the giant companies. And I know more than a few people who've gotten to that point and then dialed back and go, I don't want to serve this market at all totally because it, it's so much more complex. And so that's a cre- you know a key part of pricing packaging is like, yes, absolutely. Listen to the way your customers expect to engage. You can't force a subscription. You can't force, you know, a package. You can't, you can't force them into a buy model that doesn't make sense. But then, also, at the same time, look at the impact that has on you and on your team and on your sales cycles. And, you know, if if suddenly people are going net 60, net 90, net 120, when you're used to getting paid same day or on a regular subscription, you know, that's got to influence the way you structure things too. I think with that as well, there's something that a lot of people that honestly don't have successful productized service businesses gets, get wrong when they're trying to start it is that they do try to get them into just that one thing, as Joel was just saying, it's like, this This is all that we do, right? And there is no like flexibility there. I think I actually learned this from you, Sam, something I was listening to a podcast episode or some of yours I was listening to about like, with all productized services, it's like 80 to 90% productized. And like there is still, but just because it's a productized service and you can deliver it at scale doesn't mean there's not room for like something slightly different. So what we do at Editor Ninja is like, so we have like some content agencies producing like technical B2B content, some link building agencies producing content, like guest posts, just like across the map of, of things, of, you know, needs and lengths and all that stuff. But like the link building agency 
they have our editors checking, make sure that this link with this anchor text is in there, right? Make sure we're not linking to this competitor. Here is the specific style guide for Forbes or whatever, right? And so we adjust to that. I actually create a brief for every new customer coming on and share that with their lead editors so that like, so that they know like, hey, we're doing like, yeah, copy editing, proofreading, but there's also this other thing, right? We can check like phrase SEO scores on a certain, you know, on a certain level, like, like that kind of thing. But, you know, you just figure out how to price, how to price that in and also recognize that like every project, even if it is a product I service customer is going to need something, uh, you know, a little bit different. They want to shoot it at their office versus at like a random third, you know, third location or whatever that is. And we, we just need to allow for that and bake it into your pricing to account for, you know, these things that come up that like you just don't realize until you've actually sold it, right? So you don't lose your shirt. Yeah, it's so true. And if there's one thing that I would emphasize too, this took me a while to learn. It kind of like, you know, was kind of an earned insight over several years is like actually like productized services. It's not just like a, you're either a productized service or you're not. You know, it's not, it's not that sort of binary thing. It's really like, you know, it's product as services and, and like productization is really just like a, a continuum or a spectrum that you can, you know, you know, move along at different stages in your customer, in your company's life cycle to, you know, it's a means to an end in, you know, different times or for different strategies, right? I think like, you know, it, for just to give an example, like very early on, you might have to be like, you know, just like 60% productized because you just need to drive some revenue and then, you know, get, you know, that takes some, a little bit extra customization. You're very loose on a couple of things and then you kind of get to scale, you get really good product market fit and understand your customer. And then you can get like super, you can get like 95, you know, percent, you know, productization. And then, you know, that is great. And then you get to a few million dollars in revenue and you start, you know, working up market into even bigger enterprises and, they're willing to give you a lot of, you know, you know, revenue, but it's going to actually take you down to like 70%, you know, 65% prioritization for a little bit. So like, it, it, I really think it's, it's at the end of the day, it's like a means to an end. And like, it's absolutely something that changes throughout the life cycle of your business. And like, I would say like getting from like zero to, you know, 1 million, zero to 2 million, the fastest, probably fastest way to do that, I think is a prioritized service. You know, getting from three million to ten million, I think it's like you actually have to unproduct. And you know, we're you know a little over three million, so I'm not at ten million, so I can't speak. But my hypothesis is like we're actually going to have to like dial back the productization to you know yeah. at, if we want to move you know to towards eight figures at like best possible speed. So it's like well, like even yeah. SaaS businesses, to your point, they have an offer where you get high enough in their price tiers and they'll do custom work for you. Oh, I mean, yeah. they, you'll hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's super expensive, but they're absolutely going to do it. It's super high margin 100%. for them too. Like we're the, it's like, you got to be pragmatic and you have to look at what your market and where you're going is. And it, there is like, probably, I think about this a lot. There's probably a cap to a productized service that is 100% productized and like, just so like dogmatic about it. And that's okay if you want that to be your cap. But if you're looking for like growth, continued growth, you do have to get creative and either go offer a new, completely different line, buy another business and merge it in, or like change up what you do and be more flexible. Well, I don't like that one I bit. I want a members only productized <laughs> service jacket where you're either all in on productized services. All in or not. all out. Yeah. No, that makes I sense. That, Even that, like HubSpot and Salesforce have like the service component. Yeah, but yeah go ahead, John. Yeah, I would say, that, but there is an outlier as well. I mean, Design Pickle is an outlier. They're at 30 plus million a year, right? And they just layered on the ability to have multiple, multiple accounts at once, right? So they're like, they're what, 495 a month, something like that. Then they layered on their like, you know, they more services for like nine ninety five a month. Now, I think they have another one as well. And if you need more capacity, you add on another another lane. I mean, exactly how Editor Ninjas works. And they're at thirty plus million, you know, a month. They're not or thirty plus million a year. They're not doing any sort of like, as far as I know, like custom services or anything like that. So I don't know that there it necessarily has to be a cap. But I do think you at least have to go like up market and like provide a lot more, like productize a lot more. So there's going to be a lot fewer people that want it, but they're going to be willing to pay you, you know, instead of you know, $1,000 a month, they're going to pay you $10,000 a month. And they're just getting a lot more of the thing that you're doing for it. So I think it is, it is possible. I hate the idea of, of uh, doing custom work as well, Jim, honestly, like coming from a custom like services agency, you know, years ago, it's like, it's hard to sell. It's hard to retain, like it's hard to deliver, you know, and especially if you want to get out of it, like if you want to get out of the delivery, it's going to be super hard unless you have good people in place already. 
Yeah. Fun, fun fact with Design Pickle. So just while we're talking about, I'm like, super impressed with what, what they've done. I will say like just some interesting observations. It's like, if you look at them, they actually, you know, and never use the term productized service anymore. And now they're talking that they call themselves something like a software design platform or like, which I think, you know, there's a lot of good reasons for that. Like, you know, I, one of them is I'm sure they're looking at acquisitions yeah. and investors and like, there's a whole story to tell about, you know, how you present your company and they're definitely trying, you know, good, good on them. Totally like see why they're doing it. Like they're leaning heavily on the, and, and also actually putting their money where their mouth is. Like if you look on their LinkedIn, they have like 10, 15, like 20 engineers, like software engineers. So like they, they, they have, I think interest, just a, like they've transcended a lot of like what they were, which is like super interesting. Not a, that's not, you know, against your point at all. John, just like another interesting observation about Design Pickle. Totally. That's super helpful. And one thing that, so we've talked about like niching down, having your parameters, talked about pricing. I was creeping on the websites. Only John and I have exposed pricing. Carl, Sam, Joel, we've got to book a call to figure out pricing with you, which means sales is involved. One thing I'm trying to figure out, like, What's the line of when you can have a salesperson and when you cannot, right? It impact like what's your margin? What's your lifetime value? Because as we're looking at getting a salesperson, I'm like, wait, how much can I afford to pay this person? If my overall margin on my service is like 50 to 60%, how much do I have to earmark for the salesperson and their commission? Is that something you guys are, as you're looking to scale and potentially like be out of sales, how have you guys factored that in as far as sales led or not? If it's I like mean, self-service or not? I'm not going to say it's the right answer, but we don't have salespeople. We have account managers and the account managers know we've made it possible for them to quote against a company's needs. We've got internal rubrics where based on their level of need or based on what they're looking for, it's very easy for the account manager to turn around and go, okay, I can put together a quote, right? Our account managers aren't going out and doing outbound sales and things like that. We do have ranges published on the site. I think that's for us a defense mechanism because we don't, you know, we're actively trying to push the wrong kinds of leads out at this point. We really don't want people coming and saying, hey, can you do a case study for $500? That's a huge waste of our, our bandwidth. But yeah, I mean, we, for us, you know, it's a combination of establishing the market we're in. And I think we haven't done an amazing job of that, but we're getting better at it. And then we've just empowered our, our AMs to be able to quote and be able to take those calls. You know, I don't think we're at the point for us anyways, where we have a salesperson and we're dishing commissions and things like that. You know, I think on the outbound side, maybe, but on the inbound side, we've been fortunate enough at this point to grow largely through inbound leads and, and people coming to us and Building internal systems for quoting has been all it's really taken for us to to make that possible. It's not perfect, but you know we we have achieved a level of scale without having to go that road just yet. We hired a salesperson at about a million in revenue. Up to that point, I did all the sales myself. But I before I hired them, I actually worked with Sam quite a bit to help me on this. So I got to give him some credit. But because I was an engineer before this, like I had no idea how to do sales or how to tell somebody else to do sales or evaluate anybody on sales. But I, I did set out like a playbook of here's how you do our sale. And it was a very like kind of a script. I mean, because I knew I was off script at that point. I just kind of sold however I wanted. And I knew how to talk to each company that would come in. But I knew a new person wasn't going to get that on day one. So it, what was nice is we had a very constrained service, very small offering. I kind of, we had these little add-ons that I would occasionally throw in. And I just took those off the deck and was like, look, just sell the main thing for the first six months. You'll get there. We'll add the other things later. And that was really helpful. So he, he his ramp time, he started taking calls independently at about two months in and then was kind of on his own the third month. And the way that like we structured comp for that, it's like a 55K base and then 10% of all sales on top of that on target earnings is somewhere around 150 to 200K a year. So that's just kind of being like fully transparent. We're pretty transparent about price, like the way we pay people. So you could kind of dig that out of our job listings if you wanted anyway. But yeah, that's where we, we're at with sales and just give you an idea of how much you expect to pay. This is US-based salespeople. I'm not super experienced, but like experienced enough to run calls on their own. We'll probably move to, so, so Editor Ninja is basically right now, our base is 500 and we're going, we're 
layering on a significantly more expensive one. And at some point we'll also go downstream as well. The plan eventually is to make basically the the main offering self-serve. So, you know, sign up for like 400, 500, 600, you know, a billing period, but then we're going to have some, but then we have others and that's just like kind of base plan and you can upgrade from there. So kind of like product led growth, if I can use that term, which has always existed. They've just done a great job of branding it, but, you know, just like self-upgrading. But I I assume at some point, probably around like $1,000, like a billing period, they're going to want to talk to someone. So I'm doing all the sales right now, but, you know, at some point I do plan to, you know, hire a salesperson to kind of hire the, to kind of handle those like higher worth ones. Right. But then they're also going to be compensated based off of retention and customer success. So they're not just going to be like, they will be a salesperson. So probably a little bit more like how Joel's doing it, where like, they'll basically be more like an account manager that they're responsible for these accounts, but they're selling them into like 5,000 a month, 10,000 a month, like, you know, sort of things. And they're, then they're also responsible for keeping that customer happy and keeping them around. So it's kind of how I'm thinking about it. So we'll have the self-serve, but then also once they, once there's a certain trigger point, I don't know where that is yet, but once they hit that certain trigger point, then they're hopping on the phone and they're actually talking yeah. to someone and someone's there's certain There's kind of like certain breakpoints where you can't have sales. You can't afford sales essentially. Right. Like if you're a $500 a month service, you probably can't afford a real full-time salesperson. You could maybe afford like a support person who can kind of hop on a call and answer some things really basically. Yeah. But you have to reach a certain level before it becomes worth it. And it probably varies a bit, but I've always heard the rule of thumb is something like $1,000 a month is like your kind of cutoff where you can yeah. have like a real sales call. But Sam, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or like would would adjust that because I know you probably know more about the sales side than, than I would say real quick as well. If I can jump in for SaaS, it's about 5K. But of course, SaaS okay, margins are like go. 90%. So I That's assume 5K for- per month. Five no five k per or year life per year. Gotcha. Oh, okay. Per yeah. year, yeah, but LTV. but they're like ninety percent yeah. margins, right? So if we're oper- if product based services are like 60 percent margins, it would make sense that it would be like ten k a year, twelve k a year, something like that is where you could afford a salesperson. But Sam, sorry, I jumped in. Love to hear your answer. Yeah, no, well, thanks, Carl, for the for the shout out there. That was super fun to work together. And I will say, like, I'm this is something I'm really passionate about. So if anyone who's listening to this episode when it goes live, just DM me on Twitter. Do you have any questions? Because like I worked in to get myself out of sales right before my my son was born. This was like two years, or well, fourteen months ago now. So like, and I just able to take like like 45, 60 days off, and the business continued to grow. And like that really made me realize like how powerful it is as a founder to not have the sales like rely on you. Because like if if the sales rely one hundred percent on you, and, and you know. Not, you know, and again, there's, there's a real reasons that sometimes, but like, if you're like the limiting factor and like, if you go on vacation for a month or whatever, like you don't want to stop revenue. Right. So like, or, you know, spending time, you know, with family, you know, kids, et cetera. So like, I'm, this is something I'm passionate about. So feel free to reach out and I'm and happy to chat with people about it. But to get to like the specific thing, like, yeah, I mean, like, you know, you do have to have like a, a high enough sort of dollar amount to have like the whole comp plan, like pencil out and like at a really high level, like, you know, your components of your sort of comp plan or like your base salary. So like, say, you know, you have your the, the individual's base salary is like 50K, which is low, obviously, for like a, it, it really depends actually on the type of sales that you're doing. Like there's like, you know, very transactional sales, you know, that'll either like close on the call or not. There's like con- consultative sales that take more. And like, let's just say, okay, base is like 50K. Let's say they're, their commission that they would earn for the whole year, their on-target earnings would be like 100K. So that means like you have to figure out a way, you know, for for that 50K to kind of come out of their commission plan. So if you divide that 50K divided by 12, that means, you know, let's call it, you know, round down for the math, that's 4K a month about. And that means basically like 4K... And if there's, let's say, say they make like 8% commission on every deal, then, you know, I usually don't do public math. So maybe this is a bad idea, but like, okay, so that's I was like say, that was a daring yeah. move to say 8%. If you go right? 10%, I could have done that in my yeah. head. But yeah, eight, how did I do that? Let's just do 10%. Okay, 400. Yeah, 400, 10%. Okay, so they make 400 on every deal and we need to get them to, what did I say, 4,000 a month to hit their own. So that means they need to be doing, you know, 10 deals a month, you know, and, and then you have to just think is like, is that actually realistic? And also like, can I, you know, pay, can I find that person? Can I, you know, pay them? Does it all pencil out? And also, you know, is it, if you, if we look at like, you know, profit and like gross margin, like, does it pencil out in, in, 
And the thing that I, that was a big mind shift for me when I actually hired like our sales team was like, and I think I may have told this to you, Carl, when we were, you were like thinking about like, oh, should I do it or should I not? It's like, it's an, it's an investment. Like, because like it will, it's either going to make you money or like, you're not going to keep that person around. Right. It's not like, I think a lot of people are afraid to, you know, take that step because they're like, oh, this is a big new cost. But like, if it's a cost, you know, something didn't work out and that, that is a risk, but that that's the main risk is like, you know, so like if it, if it all works out, like hiring a salesperson becomes like, you know, is, is not a cost center. It, it's, it's a profit center. No, no, totally agree. Um, and I love seeing the math there cause that's something I'm going through right now. Um, so I want to end with the main thing that I, I think a lot of us focus on for growth. It's, lead generation. It's like we've talked about what productized services, the guardrails, we've talked about pricing, can you have sales or not? How do you get business? I mean, Joel, you mentioned SEO is working really well for you. Like with one day design, one thing that is nice, we have this agency, a lot of unqualified leads for the agency actually qualified for one day design. So that's been a little bit of an unfair advantage. We're doing some building in public and some things on indie hackers that have gotten leads, but we haven't truly built out or perfected that funnel yet. We're looking at paid for some short-term gains and then long-term trying to figure out what the play is there. But what are you guys doing? What has worked and what hasn't even, or what hasn't worked when it comes to lead gen for for your companies? uh, this is this is a really interesting one. The first two years basically was all, almost all inbound. I barely did any outreach, and it was just like if I did, it was like one-off things where I just saw, happened to see someone and I thought, oh, that might be a good client. Let's talk to them, you know. So that I wouldn't even count that as like real outbound. Almost all inbound started off like the strength of my personal brand, to be honest. And I think that's the you know to your point, Jim. I think it's really good if you have any unfair advantage to just leverage the shit out of it until you can't anymore. You realize it's not the best asset. So I did leverage the shit out of that for the first year. And then I started to really intentionally back off because I wanted the the team to be able to build like their own, you know, their own channels and leads. So now my salespeople kind of like, they basically replicate many versions of what I did on my own. They're not the same person, but they absolutely are out there in the communities I was in. They're talking about what we do. I still do some one-to-many communication. Like I'll lead a webinar, go to a conference and speak, things like that that are in our niche. But I don't I try not to do any of that like one-on-one type outreach and you know individual connections just in order for the company to kind of grow without. We've just started in the last month now doing targeted outreach where we're actually sending maybe 100, 200 cold emails a month, very low volume, but we're in a very niche market with, you know, just a few, you know, hundred clients we would ever want to work with anyway. So there's no point in like just blasting the world, but it's, it's, it's working. We're booking calls off it. It works. Absolutely. Like, especially because we have a lot of assets as well. We have tons of testimonials. We've got a couple of case studies. Thank you, case study buddy. I got to give a big shout out to Joel because they've helped us with both of those. But yeah, so the, the if you have a lot of assets, cold email also works even better. I know a lot of people start with it and I, I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad idea to start with it if you have nothing else as an asset, but there's a lot of other assets you probably have that you can leverage like your personal network, your previous job experience, et cetera, that might make it a lot easier than going straight to cold email. But once you have like a enough of a good story to tell through those emails and collateral to back it up, it gets so it, it just it's downhill from there. They just need to know you exist, basically. I, I'm going to echo that for me. So with with Credo, it's SEO, paid ads and a referral partnerships is what works for us. But it, that's not how it started. It started off of me being known as an SEO person and people coming to me and wanting to work with me and me saying, I'm not taking on clients, but I can connect you with someone who is. And then I'd get a referral kind of there on the back. And of course, the service has morphed from there. With Editor Ninja, it's it's starting off the same way. It's people that like, it's agency owners. It's honestly some of like Credo's customers. It's people that know me in the space. And yeah, as Carl just ended there, it's me out there talking about what it is that we're doing, doing a little bit of like building in public and talking about wins and losses and that sort of thing. But basically, it's just people knowing that this service exists and just, you know, knowing that it's there when their editor quits or they have to fire their editor or something like that. So it's basically just being there at like the right place in the right time. And also like being in, there's one Slack group that's like, has like 8,000 plus like content marketers and in-house content marketing leaders. So I'm involved there and that's been good. And then also do actually a little bit of like 
kind of like paid promotion of editor ninja within that group and that's actually driven us that's been i mean that was roi positive in the first week so you know like doubling down on that like that that's working pretty well but taking a super educational super consultative let's just hop on the phone and you know chop it up and see what it is that you're working on and even if it's not a good fit for you at least we got to connect and make a friend right like that sort of approach like trying to be super customer forward super relationship driven. And I think that's going to be what sets us apart in that space because all of our competitors are very like transactional. We do content editing and copy editing and proofreading for B2B businesses, right? Like it's boring. So like if we can be different from that, our brand can be different from that, can be super friendly, super like opinionated, super colorful. I think that's going to, that's going to set us apart. Yeah. I think, you know, an ounce of positioning and differentiation is worth a pound of you know, any sort of activity on any channel, right? Your yeah, analogies good, are so good, good today. Yeah, the wood chopping <laughs> cheese. The public man, you're on fire. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It, it, and I think that's like, if someone's listened to this and they're trying to like, you know, draw some conclusions, I think it's like one thing is like all of us have found a really good, you know, well, Jim's still working on finding his, his niche, his niche. So, you know, you'll, you'll get there, Jim, with one day design. I know that's something you're still working through, but like, yeah, I think it's like, you know, ultimately, you know, you can have the best, you know, arrow in the world, but if it's pointing at the wrong direction, like it doesn't really matter if you, you know, anyways. All right. There's another analogy, last analogy of the, of the show, but, <laughs> but yeah, seriously though, like, I think it is so important, you know, positioning differentiation, like, you know, for Carl, like he doesn't do, you know, Content is such a big area, but he's, you know, carved out, you know, such a specific niche and there's really not a lot of alternatives, right? And like, I think, you know, that is, you know, that makes everything so easy when you have, you know, a really valuable service, like to a very specific audience and you're just pretty different, right? Than, you know, other options out there. Yeah. It also leads to a lot of referrals, which is something we haven't really said. Yeah. I think you, you just mentioned this, John, but like, we get, we early days and still get a lot of referrals from existing clients or even people in the industry who just can't do what we can do. And they're like, so other content agencies send us people mm-hmm. all the time. And I'm like, I haven't even heard of this content agency, but because what we do again, to Sam's point, it's like so specific, they're fine with passing that kind of really specific business over because they're never going to win it. They don't want to do it. It's too hard. So that's a really important one for when you do niche down enough, you can eventually just get this like referral engine going, which makes it so much easier. Uh-huh. Yeah. Also, I think the, a lot of, we kind of hit on this earlier, but a lot, your, the economics of your business really determine like what marketing channels are even viable options for you. Like, you know, you really, cause like, if you have a really high LTV lifetime value, you can afford to spend much more to acquire a customer. And there's just certain things, you know, you can do that, like, you know, going to in-person events or, you know, the outbound sales stuff with a full like SDR team that can get very expensive. Like, but if you're doing, you know, if if your kind of lifetime value and your average order value is significantly lower, you know, you're going to need to have a lot more like inbound and like community and like build a huge social following or, or whatever, like audience driven businesses. And like, I think there's a, I mean, audience is always a plus no matter what, but I've, I've seen you know, there's some folks out there, a really good example, I think, is Marshall at Support Shepherd. They're a productized service for basically higher specific role overseas. They, you know, he has a, he's built a really great audience on, on Twitter and he does a ton of like influencer marketing partnerships on Twitter. And like, I think they have done, you know, millions just from that. So I think it, it's like, you know, it, it really like actually his his average order value he could probably do more things but just an interesting example like audience driven stuff can be very powerful for for anything but actually like it becomes almost a necessity if you have a like a lower aov you just can't afford to spend a ton on ads with a lower aov you can't afford some of the tactics yeah not different not 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 better just a different strategy a big part of the advantage of you know productized services too, is it's that much easier to own that little piece of real estate in someone's mind. You know, it's, it's possible for, you know, me or for case study buddy to be the first company people think of when they think of case studies, it's possible for stack against to become the first company people think about when, when they think about competitor pages, it's, it's possible for, 
you know, and that's that's part of the attraction of finding that niche. It's possible for Carl again to be the first people, you know, company people think about when they think about dev based and engineering based content because it's a it's a niche that that they scratch. And I think the distance that can take you is huge. Just being top of mind, being so good at solving one particular problem that's pervasive, you can't ride that forever. But it it will take you a long, long way, especially. You know, for for me, when we launched, like the biggest advantage we had is I had a personal brand that I was, you know, I was fairly well known for the conversion copy side. I was known in software and SaaS and agency circles. I had spoken at events. Now we can't ride that wave forever. That the gas is going to run out of that tank, and you know we're we're behind the curve now, and and we're investing in other areas. But you can grow to be a seven figure business easily on the back of your own. You know, influence as long as you do a good job of making it so that you're top of mind when that particular, you know, and that diversifies who you can influence too. We would get referrals from freelancers like, I don't do this, but I know a company who does, or we'd get, you know, the number of times we'd finish an interview and the person go, this was a great experience. You know, we want to do this for us, right? We have a bit of a natural flywheel, but I think at some point too, you can't expect to live off that forever. You, you can't expect that to carry you forever. And I think one way or another, you want to double down on what's working, but you also want to plan for the future. And as your AOV changes or as your offering changes, or as especially if you're thinking of going up market, the tools in the toolkit are probably going to need to change to take you as far as you want to go. Because the more complex, the longer the sales cycle you know, the, the more difficult the market to get into, like it was a wonderful thing not to have to worry about what quarter people were setting budgets in. And now that's not <laughs> really the case yeah. for us anymore. Amen. But you, know, you, yeah. you want to take advantage of what you have, double down on what's working, but you also need to be cognizant of, hey, as things change for us, what we do has to change along with it. You can't just expect the gravy train to chug on forever. All these analogies. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting how I think almost everybody here launched their company on the back of the kind of brand equity they built themselves, right? Even with one day design, it's like it's it's that that same thing. But then it has to shift, and, and there's that certain point, like how you talk about that that seven figure mark. It's like okay, let's let's make this more diversified or sustainable with, with other repeatable and scalable channels. Well, well, this was awesome. I I feel like we've got to do another one where. I want to like do a roundtable on what are the innovative and interesting productized services that have caught your attention that you're kind of learning from. Because I like we have an internal Slack channel where we just nerd out on this. We're like, oh, that that's interesting. Let's kind of steal that idea and do this to ours. But again, thank you guys for coming on. Any any parting words for anybody, Sam? You, you've been on a roll. I don't know if you have some other analogies to bestow. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, this first of all, this is awesome. We could go on. There's so many topics we could hit into, so I'm sure we'll have to do it again. But yeah, I think parting thoughts are, you know, ultimately, you know, you have to get good at your craft or at your area. And there's like no sort of shortcuts there. I think basically the good news is like anyone can get, you know, good at something, you know, pretty quickly, like you know, six months, you, you really want to, you know, learn about, you know, a specific segment of, you know, um, write copy or video or design, like you practice every day and you can get good at it. But like, you're not, if you don't have a product or service yet, it's like, you have to think of like, okay, what skills do I have that are like valuable to the marketplace? And like, you know, how can I combine those to, you know, you know, actually be something that's differentiated, right? So for me, you know, it's video as well as like sales and marketing and understanding like B2B marketing, you know, Carl, you know, engineering and also content and writing, like, you know, having that, being able to live in those both of those worlds. So like the key, I think, you know, to, you know, basically any of this and, you know, with, I think you'll see if anyone digs into all of our stories is like, we basically, you know, built up some, you know, really interesting, you know, relatively rare and valuable skills. You know, I and think then you'll see if anyone digs into like all of our stories is like, we basically, that, you know, built up them unique, some, you know, really and like, there's really like no way to relatively skip that rare and step. Like you skills can't just and then like we combine them in like an want a seven figure project service and then like start. And like there's really like no way like to you, you really do need to step. put in, like you can't just you know, like decide to, you know, want a seven figure project service and then like even if it's like in six months or a year, like 
you know, you know, or like you can, you might be surprised, like what you already have and you don't know, like what, what did you learned in your job the past, you know, six years working for, you know, big companies, right? You probably, you know, learned something there. I actually didn't really build anything on my audience. I probably like the resident lowest Twitter follower, follower, following person here, but, but I, I did actually build some relationships in my past, like full service agency. Right. So like, that was like, I like more of a full service agency and like was able to kind of catapult some of those relationships to start, you know, my project service. But like, yeah, I think if, if there's one thing I'd leave people with, it's like, if you're stuck, like when in doubt, like really, you know, get good, like at, at something like build those skills and then figure out how you can combine them in a unique way that's valuable to, you know, a specific persona. Ideally one with also a lot of willingness to pay. Cause like, there's a lot of things that people will find valuable, but like you also have to serve a market that has the ability to pay you. So like, we're hitting on a lot of things really quickly, but those are like two big points, I would say. Yeah, follow the money is what I'm hearing. So I love it. But guys, this was awesome. Carl, John, Sam, good to have you on again. And Joel, it's been awesome to meet you, man. But hopefully we can all come back again. But thank you guys so much for the time. Yeah, like together, Jim. Yeah, this was awesome. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Jim. Yeah. yeah, awesome. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.